There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. You see, Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that are a fraction of the price of mattresses one can purchase in the store. The mattress industry has for too long forced consumers to pay notoriously high markups, and Casper has had enough. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of their mattresses through cutting up the middleman, the retailer, and selling directly to you, the consumer. Now, you see, for years I've had trouble finding a mattress that has the perfect blend of bounce and stiffness until I finally received my own Casper mattress. Casper mattresses provide resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort, and this has literally changed the quality of my sleep overnight. Ha! A hybrid sleeping product that combines premium memory foam with latex foam, it has become the most awarded mattress of the last decade. Uh, mattresses start at $500, and they go as high as $950 for a California king-size mattress. These are great prices. If you, like me, are tired of expensive mattresses not actually making your quality of sleep any better, it is incumbent upon you, my friend, to go out and get one. Casper mattresses are easy to purchase, and you can do so risk-free. Casper offers free delivery right to your door, and if you are not satisfied with your purchase, you can return it within a hundred days at no cost. Let's be honest, guys and girls, lying on a mattress for a couple of minutes in a showroom is simply not enough time to tell if that is the right mattress for you. Now, Casper is willing to give the listeners of Cool Canadian History $50 off their first purchase. All you need to do is go to the link caspertrial.com slash coolcanadianhistory. That's casper, C-A-S-P-E-R, trial, T-R-I-A-L dot com slash coolcanadianhistory. Get your purchase, get your mattress, sleep better now. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 4, Episode 1, The Hundred Days Campaign. A hundred years ago today, 16 September 1918, the Canadian Corps was in the middle of conducting one of the greatest offensives of the entire First World War. Known as the Hundred Days Campaign, this offensive would break the back of the German army and spell the end of the First World War. In a previous episode on the Battle of Amiens, which was a summer 2018 special episode, uh, I recommended Shane Schreiber's shock troops of the British Empire. 
And while I certainly still recommend it, it's a great operational account of the 100 Days Campaign, today's book recommendation is Patrick Dennis's Reluctant Warriors, published in 2017 by UBC Press. This is a superbly written narrative of the conscripted reinforcements filling the rapidly depleting ranks of the Canadian Corps during the 100 Days Campaign. It effectively shows how important a role these Canadian conscripts played during this part of the conflict and how they fought bravely despite the controversy surrounding their forced enlistment. Now, to understand the significance of the 100 Days campaign, we need to start back in March of 1918. For nearly four years, the Western Front had been locked in a trench deadlock. While both the Entente powers and the German army had experienced success in battle on numerous different occasions, this success was often measured in yards. 2,000 yards here, 4,000 yards there. You see, from a bird's eye view, if you went half a kilometer into the sky, the Western Front's trench systems had looked relatively the same since the end of 1914. Both sides constantly struggled to find a way to break this trench deadlock, and more often than not, offensives grinded down into a simple but bloody strategy of attrition, trying to kill more of the enemy than the enemy did of you. Now, a few major strategic events had occurred by the spring of 1918, which set the stage for 1918 being the climax for the war. The Russian Revolution had erupted in late 1917, and the new victorious Bolshevik regime had pulled Russia out of the war by December 1917, officially signing an armistice in early March 1918, but effectively out of the war by December of the end of 1917. This left Germany with huge tracts of Eastern Europe under its control, while most importantly allowing it to transfer almost all of its Eastern divisions to the Western Front. This freed up somewhere around one million German soldiers who were now going to fight in the West. Now, not all was bad news for the Entente, because of course the Americans had entered the war in April of 1917. However, the bulk of the American army would not start arriving until 1918. Thus, the German high command was faced with a unique situation in March of 1918. A huge swell of reinforcements arriving along the Western Front, while of course fully aware that the Americans were on their way, fresh troops and materiel. So these strategic considerations set the backdrop to what becomes known as the German Spring Offensive, otherwise known as the Ludendorff Offensive, or Kaiserschlacht, which is Kaiser's Battle. Launched on the 21st of March 1918, the Ludendorff Offensive persisted until the 18th of July 1918, and saw some of the largest advances made by any side in the war since 1914. The Germans aimed the spear of their offensive at the point in the Entente lines where the British and French linked up. The great gamble of this offensive was that if the German army could break the link between the British and the French and inflict a decisive defeat on the British themselves, they could perhaps convince the French to sue for peace. While the gains made by the German army were incredible by First World War standards, the ultimate strategy failed. Even by late April, any serious threat of a German breakthrough had passed. Strategically important Entente-controlled regions had been protected, and by July, the offensive completely petered out. Ironically, 
the only real serious strategic result of the Ludendorff offensive had been to almost destroy the offensive capability of the remaining German armed forces on the Western Front. This was Germany's great last gamble, and it had failed. It was now time for the Entente forces to respond. Now, one of the interesting aspects of the story of the Ludendorff Offensive is the role of the Canadian Corps. More specifically, the very limited role of the Canadian Corps. While British divisions were quickly slotted into areas of the line under threat, Arthur Curry, the Canadian Corps commander, fought desperately to prevent the breaking up of his corps. In fact, the Corps spent most of the Ludendorff Offensive dug in heavily around Vimy Ridge, fighting a series of minor engagements, and for the most part, the Corps remained together. Eventually, though, Curry was forced to give up 2nd Canadian Division to support British 6th Corps, but even then, 2nd Division was spared the brunt of the main German assault, and the men of 2nd Canadian Division earned themselves a fierce reputation for trench raiding. Overall, the Corps had remained surprisingly intact. In fact, Curry himself was quoted as saying, Sir Douglas Haig, British Commander-in-Chief himself, told me that in the dark day of the spring, the one comforting thought he had was that he still had the Canadian Corps intact, and that he should never regard himself as beaten until that Corps was put into battle. Haig, like Curry, understood that keeping the Corps intact was in fact keeping together one of the most powerful formations on the entire Western Front. The question is, though, what made the Corps so powerful? First and foremost, after the first couple months of the German Spring Offensive, the majority of British Corps formations had been beaten up and suffered serious losses in both men and materiel. The Canadian Corps had been spared most of that, and this naturally gave it an edge in fighting power. However, even before the Spring Offensive, the Canadian Corps was considered one of the most powerful formations in the entire British Expeditionary Force. Since the end of the Battle of Passchendaele in October of 1917, the Corps had been undergoing a period of rest, reinforcement, and training. By the time of the Hundred Days Campaign, so August 1918, the Corps boasted just over 100,000 men. At that time, no British Corps could boast the same number of men. In fact, a Canadian division averaged approximately 7,000 more soldiers than a British division. The Corps had also undergone a dramatic restructuring under Commander Arthur Curry. This gave it an edge in firepower when compared with other British Corps formations. Curry brought over most of the firepower, so we're talking about machine guns and artillery pieces. Um, he brought over most of the firepower that was originally allocated to the 5th Canadian Division, a division that was pretty much broken up by early 1918. This meant that a Canadian division could boast one machine gun per every 13 soldiers. Now compare this to a British division which had one machine gun for every 61 soldiers. As well, the Canadian Corps had a ratio of 12 artillery pieces for every 1,000 soldiers, which was three times the artillery support given to 1,000 soldiers in a similar British division. Perhaps one of the more interesting reorganizational aspects of Curry's command was when he merged his engineer, labor, and pioneer battalions into powerful engineer brigades, so 3,000 soldiers strong compared to a British 700-person strong battalion. These engineers and their supporting personnel were critical in helping the infantry bypass battlefield obstacles in a rapid manner. 
With this centralization of manpower, the engineer brigades were far more effective at bridging obstacles and constructing transportation routes for the advancing corps. Curry was even able to add a couple of transport companies to his corps, which gave him a 100 more trucks than were available to a standard British corps. What this all meant was that the Canadian corps had more men, more guns, and could move faster than almost any corps formation on the entire Western Front. The only corps formation, in fact, in the summer of 1918 comparable was the Australian Corps, led by General John Monash. So with the German spring offensive having failed, the Entente forces were poised to strike, and it was going to be the Canadian Corps, alongside the Australian Corps, that would act as the tip of the spear for the final thrust that would finally crush the German army and help end the First World War. Just a reminder, guys, you can find us all on your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and of course at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. If you go to our Facebook page, or if you go to our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. The 100 Days Campaign, officially launched on 8th of August 1918 at the Battle of Amiens. Now, for those who want a detailed accounting of this battle, please refer to the August 18th, 2018 special episode on the Battle of Amiens. You see, the Battle of Amiens was a stunning success. Prior to the battle, the Germans knew that wherever the Canadians were positioned, the likelihood of an attack increased. Curry thus utilized a cunning deception plan to make the Germans believe the Corps was farther north in Flanders. The Germans were shocked then when, on August 8, 1918, the Canadian Corps struck, supported by hundreds of tanks and hundreds of planes conducting low-fine tactical air support, all the while fighting alongside the much-feared Australian Corps. Thirteen kilometers were gained by the Canadian Corps on that first day alone. General Ludendorff called August 8 the blackest day for the German army, and by the end of the battle on the 14th of August, Even the Kaiser himself admitted that Germany would have to seek a peace settlement. By the end of the Battle of Amiens, the Canadians had punched 24 kilometers deep into German-held territory and beaten 14 different German divisions. But they suffered a staggering 11,822 casualties. The Canadian Corps would see Thousands of newly conscripted young men arriving from Canada who would play a significant role as much-needed front-line infantry in the coming campaign. And here I have to make a nod to Patrick Dennis, who rightly pointed out to me in my Amiens episode that I incorrectly attributed the reinforcements of the Corps to the defunct 5th Canadian Infantry Division and not, as I should have correctly, to Canadian conscripts. My apologies, Mr. Dennis. After Amiens, the Germans were back on their heels and the Entente forces would not let up. It should be noted that while I am focusing on the Canadian Corps, all throughout the Western Front, French, French territorial, and newly arrived American troops were now conducting attacks on German positions. 
Not to mention that almost every assault by the Canadians was supported or accompanied by British troops. It should be made clear, however, that the locus of the Entente offensive along the Western Front was with the British Expeditionary Force, and thus, at the sharpest end, the locus was with the Canadian Corps. After Amiens, the Canadians were moved into an area just east of the city of Arras, where they would soon spearhead a drive into the heavily fortified Hindenburg Line. The Hindenburg Line was a series of German defensive positions roughly 30 kilometers in depth, one of the strongest German defensive lines along the entire Western Front. If the Hindenburg Line was breached, the Germans would have no serious defensive positions to fall back on. There was a line further back, it should be noted, known as the Hermann Line, but this was still incomplete. By now, there was no hope of surprising the Germans, and in fact, the Corps itself was given barely any time to prepare for the next assault. The Battle of Arras, as it came to be known, was launched on August 26, and saw the Canadians pound their way towards the Hindenburg Line in a series of set-piece battles. By early September, they came upon the very western edge of the Hindenburg Line, protected by the heavily fortified DQ Line. This was an important fortified section of the Hindenburg Line that saw some of the deepest belts of barbed wire along the entire western front. Thick, thick belts of barbed wire. This was running between the French towns of Drocourt and Quillon, so DQ. The capture of the DQ line commenced on 2 September, and by 3 September, the Canadians had stubbornly pushed through the thick belts of barbed wire, forcing the Germans to begin falling back. Sir Julian Bing, former commander of the Canadian Corps, told Arthur Curry that the breaking of the DQ line was in fact the turning point in the entire Hundred Days campaign. By this point, though, many Canadians could not understand why they were the soldiers constantly being thrown at the toughest German defensive positions. As one Canadian infantryman wrote, it seems like we are the only soldiers in the entire BEF. In the fighting to break the Hindenburg Line, the Corps had suffered 11,423 casualties. The Germans now were forced to fall back on a defensive canal protecting the key railway city of Cambrai. This was known as the Canal du Nord. At this point, the Canadian Corps was afforded a short pause while it prepared to attack this daunting obstacle. However, even during this quiet period, it suffered another 3,000 casualties. The battle for the Canal du Nord would prove to be a victory for Curry's engineer brigades. You see, the Canal du Nord was a long stretch of dry canal that posed significant challenges to any military force attempting to cross it. It was deep, it was wide, and it could not be crossed without multiple bridges being constructed across it. This meant that the engineers were going to have to erect several bridges the morning of the assault to allow the Corps to cross it, all of this, of course, while under fire. Overlooking the canal was another key German defensive position, Borlon Wood, a high strategic piece of thickly wooded terrain. Adding to the complications was Curry's daring tactical plan. He sought to cram the Corps into a very narrow space, basically two divisions in front, two divisions in behind, punch through the canal defenses with this narrow, uh, heavy thrust, and then fan out quickly so that all four divisions advanced side by side. I will put a map up 
uh, from the Nicholson official history in a, on the Instagram page, which will show this uh, um, battle plan sort of laid out. I mean, even Curry's senior commanders were worried about this tactical plan. Uh, Julian Bing famously told Curry that if anybody could do it, it was the Canadians. But if the plan was to fail, it would cost Curry his command. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nonetheless, on the morning of the 27th of September, the Canadian Corps attacked. A total of 17 bridges were constructed across the canal within 24 hours, with seven constructed in the first couple hours of the assault in the morning itself. A massive artillery barrage supported the Canadian crossing, helping to protect the engineer brigades. By the 28th of September, the Germans had abandoned their positions around the canal and the dominating heights of Borlon Wood and had fallen back in a chaotic manner to defend the crucial city of Cambrai. Arthur Curry wrote later, the Battle of the Canal du Nord was the toughest victory earned by the Corps in the entire war. Now Cambrai, to the east of the canal, was the key to everything. It was a crucial transportation hub, anchoring the rear of the Hindenburg Line. If Cambrai fell, the Hindenburg Line would be officially broken. The Canadian Corps thus continued to assault the Germans through the end of September and into early October. By October 10th, the Canadians had reached the outskirts of the city. The Germans then decided to withdraw. The Hindenburg Line was now broken. The Germans were officially on the run. Now by this point, the Canadian Corps, which had started 100,000 strong, had lost 42,600 soldiers nearly 50% of its original starting strength. Reinforcements were rushed into the front line as fast as they arrived because the Corps was ordered to keep going, nipping at the heels of the retreating Germans. By the 2nd of November, the Canadians had liberated the city of Valenciennes, the last major French city to be occupied by the Germans. At this point, many Canadian soldiers began to get the feeling that the end of the war was in sight. German soldiers were surrendering in larger and larger numbers. Full mobility had returned to the battlefield. Massive trench systems had almost become obsolete overnight. It seemed like the German will to resist had been irreversibly damaged. On the 9th of November, the Kaiser abdicated his throne. By the 10th of November, the Canadians were in Belgium, facing the city of Mons. By this point, and unbeknownst to Curry or his men, the Germans were secretly seeking a ceasefire. While most Canadians felt that the end was near, the orders were simply to continue fighting. Thus, in the early hours of the 11th of November, 1918, the Canadians attacked the city of Mons. But the advance into the city was extremely cautious, and most soldiers were told to just keep their heads down. However, at 10.58 a.m., Canadian Private George Price was shot and killed by a German sniper while conducting a patrol into Mons' city centre. At 11.11 a.m., word came down that a ceasefire had been declared. Price had died one minute before, and he was the last Commonwealth soldier to die in the war. 
the war was over. The Hundred Days Campaign broke the back of the German army and brought about the end of the war. Though it should be noted that while the Hundred Days Campaign was one, if not the most important offensive of the entire war, it was aided by the fact that years of a British blockade had slowly worn down Germany's ability to fight a prolonged industrial total war. The German people were starving by 1918, resources were scarce, and this no doubt played a crucial role in bringing the war to an end, as did the years of constant combat which had slowly attrited Germany's armed forces. The Canadian Corps' contribution to the Hundred Days Campaign cannot be understated. It suffered nearly 47,000 casualties, almost 50% of its starting strength, one-eighth of the entire casualty count of the British Expeditionary Force during this period. The Canadian Corps helped liberate 116 square miles of German-occupied territory while advancing a stunning 37 kilometers and defeating a near-countless number of German divisions. The legacy of the Hundred Days Campaign was so powerful that even in the Second World War, members of the Allied Senior Command held on to the idea that the Canadians would be vital once again for a final spearhead to liberate Northwest Europe, echoing the Corps' role in 1918, and while hard to prove, perhaps playing a role in leading to Canada receiving its own beach on D-Day. The Hundred Days Campaign was not just a Canadian story. Many British and British Commonwealth soldiers fought alongside the Canadians. But the sheer responsibility of attack, carried time and time again by the Canadian Corps, was unmatched, truly earning the campaign's nickname of Canada's Hundred Days. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool. Stay cool.